Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. Welcome, everyone, once again to another killer episode of Dead Rock Stars, the only podcast in the world which discusses rock music in as amazing and excruciating detail as this one does. Thanks totally to the uh, experience and uh, general handsome good looks of my colleague. I, I think you already said all this. Damn. Should we just get on with it? My dear friend Mick Wall is here, a man who has seen it all, done it all, done things with, near, beyond, and to, indeed, people backstage that one, uh, one should never think about, really. My name is Joel McIver, and between us, Mick and I have written at least 50 books on rock music. We're in several million words uh, in print in your favourite magazines. I'm struggling sorry, here because I'm having to bow my head to speak into the microphone. But Keep I notice, I notice, I notice yours is, is erect. erect. Yours is flaccid. Mine is flaccid. It's not the only thing about How it. Do you, what do you do? Between us, Mick and I have written at least 50 books. Oh, fuck and me. Are we still doing this? Will you shut up about the 50 a, fucking link, books? Now, between us... I'm about to become the next no. dead rock writer. If you don't shut up no, about the relevant. 50 books, it's I'm not fucking relevant. Let's talk about Cliff Burton. Today we'll be talking about uh, a man very close to our hearts, a man who was an integral part of what I believe is probably the biggest heavy metal band ever to exist or that ever will exist, Mick. I'll be interested in your view on that. We are talking, of course, about Metallica. And we're talking about the late Cliff Burton. Hurrah, uh, we're there at last. Bass player for their first three albums who lost his life in 1986 in tragic circumstances. Now, Mick, you met the great man, I mm, I did. What was he like? Well, over the course of the 50 books you and I have written, yeah. uh, my considered opinion is that... Um, <laughs> He was great fun. I mean, obviously, you know, these days you talk about Cliff Burton, what was he like? He wasn't Cliff Burton to me at that time. I was in the studio with them while they were recording Master of Puppets. Which I'm guessing would have been late 85, early 86? Yeah, it was uh, in Copenhagen, I think. Yeah, and, Sweet Silence Studios. And um, they were playing me the track Master of Puppets and Cliff was standing next to me. I hate these moments, you know, I don't get them anymore much. Yeah. But in those days where, as the visiting journalist, you'd have to stand in the studio and this is our new opus and you'd have to listen to yeah. it. And yeah. what do you do? Do you wag your head? Do you yeah, do a little yeah. dance? Do you make notes? Do you smile? What do you do? I mean, I hated those moments. But, of course, Cliff is standing next to me and he's 
absolutely going for it. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. kind of amazed and mm. full of awe that mm. you got to see one of the greatest metal albums of all time being recorded. That's a huge thing to me. But here's my point. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't where we were at. Got it. At yeah. that point. It was just another album? Yeah. yeah. I remember doing the interview with them and, and saying... Uh, why do you do this thing where like you start off with a really good riff and it's all rocking and grooving and then suddenly you just change and suddenly you're going a different direction or yeah. you bring it all down. I said, is that just to stretch the tracks out to eight or nine minutes? Because yeah. for me, it's kind of unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember them being quite appalled at the suggestion that they were in any way boring. <laughs> but for me, they were, they were just kids yeah, who were yeah. doing their best to show how good they were at what they were doing and how heavy they were and how big the whole thing was. But you have to remember, at that point, you know, they were still signed to Music for Nations yeah. in Britain and Europe, which was a very relatively small independent label. They hadn't had any hits. They hadn't done any videos. They were still very much a band that were uh, underground, a cult. The reason I got sent to cover them at that point by Kerrang! was because they had new management in Peter Mensch and Cliff Bernstein, who yeah. at that point managed Def Leppard, who mm -hmm. were about the biggest rock band in the world at that moment, had previously managed ACDC and all these other people. So the word was, this band are going to be big. They'd also done a deal in America with Elektra, so they finally had a major label behind them. And so I was out there just to kind of almost do them a bit of a favour. Yeah. But what I hadn't anticipated was what fun they would be. I mean, Lars dominated the room, yeah. as he always does. James Hetfield sort of sulked in a corner. Kirk was just goofy yep. and into his weed and his wine. And Cliff definitely was a man apart, but not in a, an aloof way, yeah. in a very real and relaxed way. He had a great sense of humour, clearly a very intelligent guy. Mm -hmm. And we all went out for dinner afterwards and drank loads of elephant beer. <laughs> and... Um, what I always found interesting about Cliff, and, and subsequently as well, when I, I met him in London and got to talk a little bit, and then after he died, you know, when I was researching my book on Metallica, obviously I'd, I'd interviewed all the band about him and other people, and what I loved was the fact that, not just the fact that he wore flares at a time when it was against the law to yeah. wear flares, yeah, yeah. but he plainly had much broader interests than heavy metal. You know, he was a big Kate Bush fan, mm. R.E.M.? Loved R.E.M., early R.E.M., again before they became better known. He loved the Synchronicity album by The Police. Yeah. He quite admired Sting as a bass player. Oh, yeah, rightly. He was very into the Peter Gabriel album, So. Mm. And he gave the others an education. I mean, Lars mm -hmm. was a Deep Purple fan. I don't know what James was, you'll tell me. Ted Nugent, Aerosmith? Uh, yeah, Aerosmith and Nugent are the two that he always cited. Yeah. Which were pretty... Bog standard, yeah, basic, meat and boogie, potatoes, meat and potatoes. Nothing wrong with it, but not educated. No. Where Cliff was supremely educated. Mm -hmm. He had a great love of bark. He'd studied bark at college. Kirk always used to room with Cliff on the road because both of them were big potheads and the other two weren't. Kirk told me Orion, you know, the instrumental on Master of Puppets, was inspired by Cliff's take on, I think it was Come Sweet Death, yeah. the bark, it is. Opie. So for all these reasons, Cliff Burton was more than a metal icon. Yeah. He yeah. certainly was more than the bass player. He was also, it has to be said, very much a, an alpha male. So James Hetfield 
particularly looked up to him mm. and wouldn't cross swords with him. Mm. Lars wouldn't either, but Lars came from a very educated, entitled background, yeah. and so he was actually more on a level with Cliff in terms of his own self-esteem and, you know, just feeling very confident about himself. When Cliff died, you know, James inherited that skull ring that yeah. Cliff used to wear. But I think if you go back and you look at, for instance, the Cliff Amall video, yeah. you know, those shots are done by fans in the days before camera yeah. phones, bootleg cine video things. And um, there's a great thing they're doing For Whom the Bell Tolls somewhere on stage. And I find it very interesting that if you watch James, this is James, you know, who was very insecure and shy, yeah. never wanted to be the front man, became the front man by default, really. If you look at it, he seems to spend, in my memory anyway, he spends the whole time looking to his right yeah. where Cliff is. Mm, mm, mm. He takes his entire cue from Cliff. Mm. If Cliff says it's cool, it's cool by James. Cliff says it's uncool, that's uncool by James as well. Amazing. Dead rock stars lobbing light grenades into the gloom. For me, Cliff was an incredibly interesting guy. He came from a wonderful family. Mm. He was big friends with Jim Martin, who ended up as a guitarist in Faith No More. They were in a high school band together. Jim Martin told me they used to go hunting in the woods with mm. shotguns. Yeah. I mean, you wrote a book about Cliff, so I'm going to let you take over at this point, but... Here's this guy who goes hunting with rifles, yeah. has studied bark, who enjoys this very broad spectrum of music. Did anybody in Slayer ever listen to Kate Bush or talk about Sting, you know? Mm. But at the same time, has a very clear sense of who he is. Mm. I love those old YouTube videos where that band he was in before Metallica... Trauma. This incredibly Spinal Tap-esque heavy metal band and, and in their one video they've actually got like a naked virgin on an altar <laughs> yeah. that they're about to sacrifice and yeah. they're all wearing this sort of Judas Priest style <laughs> armour and then in the corner of the screen you see this guy in a cardigan and flares mm. playing tremendous bass it's the best isn't it I don't even think people say well he found a home in Metallica sort of I think they found a home in Cliff yeah one of the most interesting things I think about Cliff is the the way he, he shaped the dynamic within the band, which you've just explained very clearly. That's not usual for the bass player, you know, unless you happen to be Sting, right, who's also at the front of the band, or, or Lemmy. Or Phil Liner. Indeed. So I, a lot of this I can attribute to the cleverness of Lars Ulrich, actually. I mean, the, he spotted Cliff playing in trauma. You know, you know the sequence of events. The band ended up moving to San Francisco in order to get Cliff into the band because Cliff didn't want to leave that area. And the reason cited was because L.A. was full of posers and that they could well, never make it down there. Well, that, that's actually very <clears> telling <throat> detail because yeah. San Franciscans have always looked down on L.A. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, it, a, it's a class thing. It's, it's a, such a middle-class place, uh, San Fran. It's much more European than yeah, L.A. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. L.A. was the bumhole of the universe for most of its existence. <laughs> you only went there for Hollywood yeah, or yeah. to fail in Hollywood. Right. And it wasn't till the 60s and 70s yeah. that L.A. was considered, you know... Reasonable. I mean, to this day, you'll get English people going to LA and going, oh, I hate LA. I was in LA and I hated LA. <laughs> mm. You know, you'll get lots of actors going, well, I was in LA, but after a while, I simply had to come up. I hate LA. You know, mm -hmm. I used to live in LA for a while, loved it, mm. loved it. But San Francisco is a different yeah. trip, but it's it, much more European mm, and cultured. Yeah. It's a better place. Yeah. It's interesting his family background, you know. At one and the same time, you had a sort of a fairly relaxed 
homebody who liked to smoke a bit of weed and be at home with his folks. Then again, there was a lot of trauma, no pun intended. You know, his older brother died suddenly. Scott of, uh, I think, an aneurysm fairly early in Cliff's life. And that is, according to the legend, you know, and how much do you believe of what is myth and how much is legend and what people tell you, that is what inspired him to take up the bass and play it well in his brother's honour. Now, I don't know if that's true. That's what people say. That's what people told me for the book I did on Cliff. Certainly, he was a prodigy on the bass guitar in a way that most heavy metal bass players are not. And in fact, most bass players generally are not. The precedent really is only really Jaco Pastorius, the jazzer, you know, who, who became this Jimi Hendrix. Of and bass. did he listen to Pastorius? <clears throat> he did a bit, but he preferred Rush. Geddy Lee was his thing. Oh. And that's totally understandable when you think about it, because Geddy was, again, one of the few bass players who were really driving the music forward in an incredibly melodic way. What about, sorry to interrupt, but what about, um, actually, not sorry to interrupt. You may interrupt me. Thank you. Let me just <laughs> check with the producer. May I interrupt Joel? He says yes. He's not even listening. What about people like Larry Graham or Stanley Clark? Um, the sort of funk soul thing was not necessarily Cliff's back. He was into the bands you mentioned earlier and very much Rush. He was a Rush freak. Oh, and Iron Maiden as well. Steve Harris, Geezer Butler, Sabbath, those two. I can see Geezer Butler because I like Geezer <clears throat> Butler. You know, Geezer Butler was very influenced by Jack Bruce. Yeah. Steve Harris, though, that kind of machine gun, ding da ling da ling da ling Yeah. That was an influence? It was. And you can see that in the way that Cliff played. Uh, without getting too geeky here, everyone, about bass guitar, you can play with your fingers on the bass or you can play with a plectrum. Like so many virtuosos, Cliff chose to play with his fingers and one of the reasons for that was because Steve Harris played incredibly fast and well and accurately with his fingers. In fact, this became this massive deal in Metallica world, right? I remember when they recruited Newstead in 86. He was, a, was, all, he was a plectrum he's a, guy. He was a plectrum and a, very, and a great one. But people always but said... he paid well, the price, well, didn't well, he? Well, he, he? He made a lot of money out of that, you know. I mean, he happened to oh, be yeah. with them in the, in the yeah. incredibly sort of commercial period. But he was never truly accepted. I think that's absolutely true. And the poor guy is still carrying those scars, I think. You know, but then again, how much of this has been inflated by the legend and by the books written by people like you and me over the years? Jason's I, I, a tough nut. I, I never inflate legends. No, I, I merely throw them. down the truth, <laughs> deflate them, as you quite rightly point and out. And the funny thing is that Cliff was not this kind of rock star persona. He wasn't, I, as far as I know, I never met him because I was only 15 when he died. But from what I understand... He was exactly as you just described him. He was a quiet, sort of relaxed, intellectual kind of chap, right? I think he would have thoroughly enjoyed being a huge rock star. Yeah, right. There were so many different sides to him. The one thing I never particularly picked up on from him was was him being particularly against anything other than, as he saw it, posers and fake people, which most of us are against. Might have been a young person's thing. I mean, all this has to be framed within the fact that they were so bloody young. I mean, what did we say and do when we were 22 years old that we no longer would do, you know? And and yet that was all Cliff got to do because he died yeah. so young. Yeah, well, it was 24 when he died? Uh, yeah, he was born in uh, 61. In fact, what's weird is that... Uh, sorry, 62 he was born. Weirdly, I have the same birthday as Cliff, which is kind of... Same day? Slightly odd. Uh, no, the same date. It's February the 10th. It's not February the, same, the 10th. The same so you're an Aquarius. That's right, man. And you'd come up with that, you hippie. Uh, Aquarius. The, the, where, where what I was saying earlier was that... Uh, they decided to move the entire band to north of California to be with Cliff, which is amazing, right? And the other thing I want to say is that Trauma were an incredibly mundane band, and I hope they're not listening to this. I interviewed all I of hope them. They are. <laughs> yeah, Trauma, Trauma fans, Trauma, you're pass this link yeah. on to them now because Joel's about to twist the knife. What's tragic is that Trauma have just reformed with, no. with Greg Christian of Testament playing bass, which is a great thing. And I hope does they, he wear a cardigan? I hope they do. Does he have, does he have Lionel Blairs? I hope they do really well. Does he wear a cardigan? Does he have Lionel Blairs? And will they be sacrificing naked virgins on the altar? So I think the video you're referring to is an EPK that they had made. 
where the drummer does a drum solo with flaming drumsticks. Is that the one you've seen? I obviously don't know it as well I'm as you sure do. It's the, you, it's you've the only clearly bit. got this on your phone. Well, I had to. I, no, I had to. You had to. I had to. I had to. I had to go down the cliff button and trauma rabbit hole deeply to get that book done. So I spoke to the chaps in trauma. Lovely blokes, all of them. Unfortunately, members of a pretty mundane metal band. I think Cliff was the star. The other word would be crap. Well, no, they weren't crap. Though. No, I think Otherwise, they were pretty crap. Me, I would say no. They weren't. They were just another no, every metal band. You know, uh, equals crap. Right. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. Depending on your point of view. Yeah. Um, Mine is that they were crap. Cliff was this star, and he already had the bass solo, Anesthesia Pretty Teeth. He did, he based, did, yeah. Uh, bass he solo, did, which he is based did. on triads. It's a fairly simple thing. And people triads. Talk, yeah, Are they Chinese? Yeah, exactly. Yakuza, yeah, yeah. No, three notes put together, you know. No, I don't know. No, I know nothing about bass. Oh, I know nothing. I mean, I know Glenn Hughes. Glenn Hughes? I did. Have you ever met. Did you? Great bass player. Was it about. Was it called Triad? Listen to Mickey, so fucking rude. So Cliff joins Metallica and instantly, as you witnessed yourself, and I'm so envious that you, you did, he immediately started to sort of, you know, not tell him what to do, uh, he, he, but his, his yeah. view held sway, didn't it? You know, he, he, yeah. he was the John Lennon of the group. He was the Axl Rose. He was the Mick Jagger. He didn't write all the songs, but his influence was all pervasive, mm. utterly. Mm. Now those bass parts, you know, Kirk, who did the foreword to the book I wrote, told me that Cliff overplayed. And any musician will tell you that a lot of virtuosos do that, right? right. Those songs do not need Geddy Lee-style bass parts, right. apart from in the solo sections when they clearly do, and they, and they have those. If you listen to, what is it, Call of Cthulhu, yeah. the bass parts are exaggerated with a wire pedal, but very, but very low in the mix. We should add, though, yeah. that Lars Ulrich's favourite drummer at this point was Neil Peart from Rush. Yeah. And if anybody overplayed, especially mm. for someone mm. who couldn't play, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, for Lars, who actually couldn't play drums, he completely overplayed drums yeah, well. while Cliff was overplaying on bass. The difference being Cliff could actually play bass. The other difference being was that they turned Cliff right down in the mix, whereas they didn't turn Lars down, clearly. What? Oh, OK, Killamore has this kind of garage production, so you can what? hear the bass a bit. Hang on, hang but on, If you hang listen on. to Ride the Lightning and Puppets, you can't really hear the bass that much, apart from in the solo section. That's a revelation. Well, no. I feel on. diminished. <laughs> I feel dirtied. <laughs> they turned Cliff down. Hang on. Wankers. They didn't. You're thinking of no, Jason No, I'm not thinking Houston. of Justice. I don't mean they turned him down in that way. I just mean the bass wasn't very high in the mix. That's all. The situation with Injustice for All is that Jason came into the studio. He's playing with a pick instead of fingers. James, it is thought, did not like the way that the picked bass sound sat with the guitars. Can they I just interrupt you there? Yeah. James did not like Jason. Yeah, that, that's well, kind of what that, we're that's, saying. Uh, what I've, yeah, yeah, I've heard this from Jason. And they tried to people, yeah. fire him three weeks I after heard he joined. This, yeah, in fact, it was Ross Hoffman who told me that for the yeah. first time. And Mench and, um, told them, don't be ridiculous. It wasn't widely known, I think, until you wrote your book and you said that, mm. interestingly. I certainly didn't mention it in mine. Probably should have done. That's because you were too busy kissy-kissy. So, readers... <laughs> Uh, I wrote a book about Metallica. We're back to 50 books, aren't no, no, we? No, no. Oh, I'm not, not going to go Christ. for all of them. Mick wrote a superior book about Metallica, and the reason why it's superior is that he's much braver than I was in mine. I took refuge in talking about the music and the melodies and the fucking harmonies that Cliff bought the rest of them. Yeah, I never listened to any of that stuff. No, whereas Mick <laughs> was much more courageous when it came to talking about who ran the band, busting the mist that surrounded the band and so on. Do you so, know, it wasn't bravery. It's just honestly where my yeah. interest lay yeah and i think because you know like you say you were 15 when cliff died yeah very much a now if i was doing a book about someone that died when i was 15 it might have been a different situation sure the <clears> fact <throat> is i was older than cliff was when he died cliff was 24 i was 28 yeah they to me were like puppies running around you yeah. know I'd work with Black Sabbath in the 70s. I'd work with Thin Lizzy. So it's I'd hard to with... be in awe of people who are younger than you. 
Well, no? yeah. Yes, yeah. 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 I mean, I, no, no, I, I totally I, get it. Yeah. I, I'd been in the business for nearly 10 years when I met Metallica. Mm-hmm. They had been in the business for nearly 10 minutes mm-hmm. and they hadn't sold jack shit yet. So I'm like, okay, show me what you can do. And I reviewed Master of Puppets and I gave it five stars and I predicted a big future. So I'm going to give myself that pat on the back because it could so easily have gone the other way. So they absolutely proved themselves and it didn't take a genius to see it. We all saw it. But no, no, I mean, my field of interest has always much more to do with the people anyway. And what I found absolutely crucial about Cliff, people always talk about... If Cliff hadn't died, Constantly. they would never have made the Black Album. My point is is that Cliff wanted Metallica to be the biggest band in the world. Yeah. Here's what they might not have done, is still had Lars in the band. I love that revelation when that came out, because that led to Scott Ian of Anthrax talking about it. It led to... I don't know. Wait, there were reverberations, weren't there? What's interesting to me is that in Metallica, in the Cliff era, you had two absolutely virtuoso musicians, right? And that was James and Cliff. Dave, actually, Dave Mustaine, had been the other virtuoso previously. Right, right. Kirk is a great guitar player, there's no doubt about that, but he doesn't have the picking hand that Hetfield has. One of the geekier things that people admire about Metallica if they're musicians is the strength and precision of James Hetfield's picking hand, which may sound like a minuscule detail, and it kind of is, but it's very much part of the bigger picture of And everybody's imitated. Like. Everybody's imitated. They're still imitating yeah. it today. And uh, Oh, yeah, and then Lars... OK, quickly address this thing about Lars. Lars is a perfectly competent drummer, but he's not a virtuoso. Um, not even not. close. But, you know, he played those drums, man. You know, listen to the drums in, in Fight Fire with Fire. You know, those are some serious double kick drums. So, well, I'm trying you know, very hard to keep up. Yeah. <laughs> He's a decent What drummer. are you talking about? He's, uh, be- uh, the reason did he kick ass? That's uh, what the kids yeah. want to know. Yeah, of course he did, yeah, yeah. Sort and, of. and he and Cliff... Was were, he as good as Dave Lombardo? Nowhere near, so- and Lars will tell you that himself. Well, in two Cliff thousand- Burton yeah. and James Hetfield were plotting to get rid of Lars and bring in and Dave And bring Lombardo. in Dave Lombardo. Yeah. Now, that would have been a band. Now, that would have been a band. And the closest we got to see of it, it was in 2004 in Download when uh, Lars had that panic attack on the plane and couldn't come. And uh, he, as he said to me, and probably to you, Imagine what it's like to have the best fucking drummer in the world playing with your band while you're lying in a hospital in Copenhagen or wherever the fuck it was. Can you imagine what James Hetfield thinks of having a panic attack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love your story, by the way, of talking about essential oils in the lift with Kirk and Hetfield walks in. Tell us quickly. We're on the road on the Monsters of Rock tour in America in 89. And, you know, Kirk's kind of a hippie. And yeah. So am I. So kind of for a dude, yeah, yeah. And my girlfriend at the time was very... This is the 80s. You know, we're all vegetarian and new agey and... Um, into essential oils. Yeah. And me and Kirk are coming down in the lift uh, to the bar to go out and kick ass. And um, we're talking about essential oils. <laughs> and and literally, I'm explaining to him how lavender was called a medicine chest in a bottle. Yeah. Like if you've got a headache, you just rub some on your temples or perhaps your wrists. And, and he was well into this. Oh, we're well into this. But at this point... Lift stops at a certain floor, the doors open, and in comes James Hetfield. And I'm like, you know what also is really nice, Kirk, is Neroli. Have you tried Neroli? Oh, I love the fragrance of Neroli. And Kirk's going, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I mean, oh, I just no. shut up, just shut up. And I'm thinking, no, Neroli, you know. And James Hetfield is looking, he's what like... What the hell, buddy? What fuck you, guy. What the fuck's going on here, man? Yeah, fuck that shit, that's fag you shit. Limey asshole. And I'm like... Oh, okay. I realised I was being inappropriate. That's brilliant, though. You know, he wouldn't be like that nowadays. Who, James? Yeah, if you... Because he's post-therapy. Right. If you now told him that story, he would probably say, <laughs> I'm sorry, I was such a dick. You know, as we, we all as, he, as he would be putting drops of lavender on his wrist and, and rubbing them together. And, 
you know, inhaling the fragrance <laughs> to calm his nerves. See, now, if Lars had got his neroli together while he's having his panic attack, inverted <laughs> commas, it would have calmed him and made well, it possibly. all ylang-ylang. That's yeah. another good one. Uh, and I'll tell you who would have been into this is Cliff. Right. Because Cliff he was, was... a total hippie. Totally into his patchouli, that's for sure. Mm, mm, patchouli, mm, mm. incense sticks, very fine weed from the correct side of the hill, under the proper moon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you yeah. ever meet Corinne Lynn? Who? Cliff's girlfriend. Oh, um, no. Absolutely beautiful woman. Hippie? I don't know, but uh, his complete, you know, soulmate for the last year or 18 months of his life. Wow. You know? Just a young kid like he was, really. Right. I interviewed her for this book, spent a long time talking to her. And she is the person that I really got the most information about what Cliff was like as a person from, wow. having, having not had the chance to meet him myself. Wow. She told me loads of stuff. One thing that's just popped into my mind is that literally a couple of weeks before he died, he went and bought some tight jeans and was walking no. around with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Not tight, tight, but, you know, your normal boot cut No jeans. flares. No Harry Blairs. He's, boot cut. See, See, you're looking at it like this is this major discovery, and it fucking is. It is a major discovery. Because we have in our head, don't we, this idea that Cliff wore these massive flares just to piss people off. But in fact, come 1986, he decided to leave that behind. I love that little nugget of information, much more than anything else, you know. I think by then he was passing the flare torch to Prince, because just after Cliff died, Prince started wearing flares. (laughs) And I always took that to be Prince's very personal tribute it's amazing. To Cliff Burton. Because let's be fair, in 1986, <laughs> if you were wearing flares, the only way you could justify that was to be a Cliff Burton fan. Amazing. Yeah. I never would have thought of it that way, Mick. Yeah. No, I think Prince, in fact, uh, was a very big Metallica fan. I think Get you away. can tell. No, definitely on certain tracks that Prince recorded, you can hear the influence of Cliff Burton. Such as? You know, um, sexy Motherfucker. Uh, where the bass is... Uh, you don't know your Prince, do you? Oh, I know that song very well. I'm just okay. wondering where about... You know, he's doing triads. <laughs> <laughs> With flares on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Dead Rock Stars, a little light in the black. 
Cliff, to this day, is the rock star that uh, that I think was cheated most cruelly of his potential. I agree, because most of the rock stars we've discussed in yeah. this series died by their own hand in many ways. Yeah. I mean, they were victims of their own times or products of their own times. Yeah. Nevertheless, they took too many fucking drugs. But not this guy. Not this guy. This you know, guy actually had a, had barely begun yeah. his musical... Yeah. Uh, Trajectory. Yeah. And you know the exact parallel is? Randy Rhodes who died in yeah. a pointlessly cruel yeah. way at a very young age before he'd even got really started, yeah. just a couple of years ago. We, we will you, talk about Can Randy. you imagine if Cliff and Randy... Had played together. Yeah. Who would be the drummer in that band? <laughs> um, I'm going to say uh, John Bonham. He's the only oh. drummer I can think of at the moment. That would have been a lot of notes being played in the room at the same time, though, which leads me back to Kirk's point about Cliff overplaying, which he did. So by the time you've got Master Puppets, which you were fortunate to be present at... Clive then, Burr. Clive Burr, fine. Then you've got um, opportunities for Cliff to play bass in three or four different points on that album. The start of Damage Incorporated, the bass solo in the middle of Orion, the one at the end, which most people think is a guitar solo. It's not, it's a bass solo. It was going to be a guitar solo. Kirk was scheduled to record it, but wasn't able to make the studio that day. And when he did come the next day, fucking Cliff had recorded it on the bass. Well, he played lead bass, didn't he? Whenever he could, he did, yeah. And he would definitely have switched off that kind of youthful impulse as the years had passed, because that's what do you we think? all do. Yeah, when we're young, we all overplay when we're virtuosos. When you say we... I was talking about Ian, our producer's guitar player. No, when you say we... We, we, we virtuosos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, when we virtuosos are young, yeah, continue that Let thought. me uh, refocus, if you will. But not what you'd call a competitor by today's shredding standards, interestingly. He would have evolved his technique enormously. He would have ended up like a Yeti Lee, I think, but he would not have been like an Alex Webster of Cannibal Corpse, for example, who does all this ridiculously refined technical stuff yeah, which yeah, Cliff would not have used. Yeah. So, and Justice for All happened, didn't it, after Cliff's death? I know we're jumping mm. forward a little bit. Mm. Incredibly technical record. To this day, I'm surprised they made it, frankly, without Cliff. I'm going to interject. My <laughs> producer, my producer, I said I can. Okay. When Cliff dies, the whole question of who's going to replace him. Oh, God. Now, I interviewed a lot of people about this, including your guy from... Armored Saint. Yes. Joey Vera. Yes. And they wanted Joey to come along, yeah. and I think they very much would have wanted him to join the band. Yeah. But Joey felt Armored Saint had their own career... Taking off. When you think about that now, if Metallica and Armored Saint were viewed as roughly parallel by someone, in well, that, in, that blows your mind, doesn't well, it? Well, in fact, till Master of Puppets, Armored Saint were considered slightly ahead. They were also managed by Mention Bernstein, yeah, weren't I they? Okay. Had a big major deal. Yeah. I and, always thought they were so inferior to Metallica. But well, well, no, of course, but at the time, I mean, they'd been on the cover of Kerrang! And it was very much Joey's band. Whereas if he'd been joining yeah. Metallica, essentially he'd be joining as the uh, bass player. hand, yeah. Definitely. Although he'd have assimilated a lot better than Jason did. In 86, they did that pivotal tour with Ozzy Osbourne, did they not? They did, yeah. And actually, Ozzy and Metallica were both on amazing form, right? Did you see that I did, I did. Were you in in America? Yes, I was. Oh, man, what a privilege. Um, They were only on for about 40 minutes. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. I was there with Ozzy, and checking out the support band wasn't high on my list of priorities. I know this is hard for fifteen-year-old no, fifteen-year-old Joel does not forgive me. But <laughs> what you mean you didn't but, go and check out Metallica? But, Metallica. What you didn't go and check out Metallica? Well, I had a little look, you know. I tell you where I did check out Metallica was after they'd finished their set, and Ozzy told me to do this because he was going. 
Those fucking little shits that keep playing Sabbath, they're fucking taunting me. <laughs> and you went over to the tiny little bit yeah. and they were all smoking dope and playing Sabbath, bloody Sabbath <laughs> at ridiculous volume. Oh, and particularly great. Cliff, we found the whole thing brilliantly amusing that they should be opening for Aussie, but they weren't playing any of Aussie's albums. They were playing... You know, Geezer Butler, bass led Sabbath. Talk and Ozzy was getting paranoid thinking they were taking paranoid. the piss. Which, which, Hooray! which they probably were taking the piss. How could you not? Mm. Talk about a pivotal tour at the right point in your career. Mm. Right? The Americans liked them. Uh, they loved them. Yeah, mm. they loved them. But then Metallica always, it, it's weird. They had this X factor. They just immediately yeah. appealed to the hardcore audience. On that Monsters of Rock tour I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, with Van Halen headlining, right? Van Halen headlining, below them the Scorpions. Metallica, Kingdom Come. I think there was another one, actually, yeah, I think between Metallica and Dokken. Dokken. So Metallica were like the opening act. And yet, I remember one day being there and Sammy Hagar, the Van Halen, yeah. thing, grabbing Lars and saying, come here, come here, come here. And uh, dragging him away where he could have a sort of quick word with him out of my earshot. And when he came back, I said to Lars, what did he say? And he said, he was telling me, you little fuckers, the Metallica T-shirt is selling as many yes. units or whatever. Units every day yeah, yeah. as the official event <laughs> T-shirt. I fucking love that. And in American rock, and I'm sure possibly to this day, although these days it's probably hits on your face. Yeah, yeah, face yeah, like, yeah. Back then, T-shirt sales were a better indicator of your career than actual record sales. I heard a funny story about that tour. It's when James goes into the Scorpions dressing room one morning about 9am. You must know the story. It's says to no, Rudolf Schenker, hey, you guys got any beer? <laughs> Rudolf Schenker says, but James, it is only nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Was he French? <laughs> Hetfield says, I didn't ask the fucking time. I want to know if you got any beer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just brilliant. Okay, here's my James Hetfield story. When yeah. they were doing the Black Album, I was in the studio and it was being produced by Bob Rock. And a bit like the Kirk Hammett with the Neroli, yeah, yeah. I'm talking to Bob about vegetarianism because by this point I'm a vegetarian. And uh, me and Bob are in the, like the, the hub, you know, outside the studio, coffee and that. And we're talking about this new place. This is in Los Angeles. We're talking yeah. about this new place on Sunset Boulevard called The Source yeah. where it had like hemp... Tablecloths and you know we're talking yeah, about, and then James comes in. Oh, brilliant! And he comes and he listens and he goes, McDonald's, <laughs> fucking golden arches, burgers, <laughs> red meat. And me and Bob went, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Bob goes, yeah. Well, I sometimes take my kids to McDonald's on a Friday. They do a marvelous kids meal <laughs> for you. Chicken alternative. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Really, the juxtaposition of personalities is amazing, isn't it? I wonder if they even ever talk. You know, God. Dead rock stars. Dead men can't sue. Cliff's death. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will know the bare facts. Well, they might and they might not. I mean, they know, yeah. they, they know there was a bus crash. All right. So they were on the tour. They were on tour with Anthrax through Europe. They played in England just before they crossed over. Uh, they played the last show in, uh, what, uh, Stockholm? On, I believe, the 26th of September 86. Excuse me if I've got that city wrong. Anyway, they're rolling up this little deserted country highway near a village called Youngby. And this, as far as I ascertained, and I busted my balls, Mick, this part, trying to speak to as many eyewitnesses as I could mm. to this fucking tragic me accident. Me too, yeah. As far as I understand it, and tell me if you've studied this and it's different, they're in an English bus. The door was on the right, because it's an English bus. They're driving on the right, obviously, because it's Europe. 
the right-hand side of the bus... You know I've talked about this. We've actually tried to sort of work it out, haven't we? The right-hand side of the bus, for some reason, went off the road and went onto the gravel mm. next to the road. Now, if you think about what that does, that means that the, the front and rear wheel on the right slow down because they're on gravel. So that pulls the bus around mm. slowly. Mm. I don't think they're going too fast. We don't know that. Though, no, Charles. you're absolutely right. That's supposition on my part. There was ice on the ground. I know that. So the bus. Uh, well, that's the point of contention. So the the bus is it's gradually turned around till it's facing the way it came, judders to a halt, and then slowly falls onto its side. Now, as the bus falls, the window against which Cliff is sleeping pops out. Cliff falls out, hits the ground, and then the bus hits him. That's the sequence of events, as far as I can get it. I didn't know about the window falling out. I thought he'd gone clean through the window. But you're probably right. Well, I'll have to check the text, which in this book I wrote eight years ago. But for whatever reason, he hit the ground, the bus hit him. Yeah. The coroner's report later wrote that he died because of compression of the chest. Right. Which is what happens to anybody who gets squashed by anything, right? That's what kills you. Yeah. The emergency services came, and a crane lifted the bus from Cliff's body. However, it slipped and fell back. Hit him a second time, yeah. Um... And it's not known whether he was alive or dead at that point. Mm. But it was, you know, feared that he might have been alive and that might have killed him. Right. And then the thing about the black ice, which was posited by I know not who, possibly the driver, an English guy who's not been identified as far as I know, was uh, doubted. Uh, Hetfield apparently walked up and down the road in his pants, freaked out because he'd seen Cliff's legs sticking out from underneath the bus, couldn't see any ice. No ice was found. You check the weather reports for those days, mate. It doesn't say it's icy. Well, it was September, younger. wasn't it? It so was. It's, it's, you Late think September, about it, it's probably, so it's possible. It, it's possible. About. Seems Sounds more like possible sort of to me that the kind of thing the driver would say to justify the fact that he'd fucked the whole thing up. Or he fell asleep or he was pissed. Yeah. But he was let go. They kept him for three days and, and, and let him go. Mm. I spoke to an eyewitness on the scene who was a Swedish uh, photographer who was sent by a local newspaper. I sent him a bunch of questions and he was kind enough to answer them. And he said he didn't see any ice, but he did describe the scene, which was what, which was as we've described it. Lars had a broken toe. Bobby, the tour manager, had some injury as far as I'm concerned. Bobby Schneider, yeah. Bobby Schneider. Lars ultimately went off to Copenhagen to be with his family. Gigs were obviously cancelled. Everyone flew home. Cliff's passport was returned, cancelled and returned to his parents. And the news sort of came back to California gradually across the day of the 27th of September, 86. The most horrendous shock to everyone who, who heard it you know, I must have spoken to about 50 musicians, both well-known to us and less known from that scene, who all talked about their reactions. It was a fucking horrible bit of research, that, asking people, well, what was it like when you heard your friend was dead? Mm. Awful kind of thing mm. to do, especially with Corinne, his girlfriend, who was just completely knocked out by this. Half of them went and got pissed. Half of them went up to that the ranch up in the countryside where you said that they went shooting, you know, and had a, oh, had yeah. a big piss up That's there. That's right, yeah. You know, Ray and Jan had already had a son die, remember, right? Scott had died some years I before. I know, isn't so that their, terrible? their second of two sons right. died, leaving them with their daughter, Connie. You know, you're a dad, I'm a dad. How any family gets through that, I have no idea. No, no I hope well, they probably don't. No, you probably don't. So the loss to... Us as professionals in the metal scene... I was on crying at the time. So you uh, you were there on the spot. What mm. happened when the news came on the wire? I shouldn't take the piss, but... I'll tell you a really odd thing. I wasn't there that day, and I'll tell you why. You know you said you share a birthday with Cliff? Yeah. Well, the day Cliff died was the day my mother died. Oh, man. And she died very young at 48. Mm. So I had my own died-too-young tragedy going on. So you did. And so I wasn't actually there the next day in the office. Yeah. I remember it very well. It was a Tuesday night. Yeah. And uh, the next day I got a phone call about Cliff and I had to say, I know that's bad, but uh, my mum just died. Yeah. So 
We'll talk about that another well, time. Quite. This is getting quite gloomy, isn't it? Well, we, we are paying respect to these people. I mean, funnily enough, we normally, you and I, don't we take the piss relentlessly out of the subject of our conversation, but mm. there's really very little opportunity to do that with Cliff because he died so young and he was so talented. And as I understand it, he was fundamentally a good bloke. Yeah, right? I think so. We can take the piss out of Metallica, the rest of them, relentlessly, and we always will, won't we? Because they've done so many funny things, as well as so many great things. Yeah, we know that. I'll tell you one memory <clears> I do have. After Lars went to Denmark, he came back to London. Peter mm. Mensch, used to, his manager, had a flat in London, and Lars was often a guest there. And there was some show on at the Hammersmith Odeon. I, I can't remember who it was. This is a week later. Yeah. And after the show, I'd been in the you know, that upstairs bar backstage. Yeah. And I was, so I was coming out the side with my girlfriend at the time. And as we happened to come round the front of the Odeon where all the steps are, here was Lars, I'm assuming he'd obviously just come out before me, yeah. still on crutches. And he's like, ba-dunk, ba-dunk, ba-dunk yeah. down the steps. Hey, Mick, hey, Mick. He goes, what did you think of our show? Of course, they'd played there just yeah. a short time before. Yeah. And my head was still, I think it was the first time I'd gone out. Of course. Funnily enough, I think I'd seen Lemmy earlier that night, who was very kind to me. And I, I didn't know what to say to him. I, my head was not in that space where I could talk about... Because my mum had been very ill before yeah. she died. So I don't think I came to the show. You didn't come to the show, man! Loser! You know, all this mm. kind of stuff. Mm. So making fun, but at the same time, how could you not come to our show, you know? It was only afterwards, weeks later, it suddenly dawned on me, he didn't even mention Cliff. It didn't even come up. He's oh, he, he's on the crutches with the foot in plaster from the accident. That's how fresh it was. It's mad, isn't it? And I'm thinking, why didn't he say to me, hey, man, did you hear about Cliff or, you know, or something like that? Well, you know, they've talked subsequently about how they were unable to process this. I frankly didn't give a shit. No, of course. You know, a lot of it sounds to me like a rock star up his own arse who can only think about his band. And with the speed with which they replaced Cliff, who's to say that isn't the case? See, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? How they did that. I remember being quite shocked by that as a fan. I mean, all this stuff about, oh, Cliff would have wanted us to carry on. Lars and James wanted us to carry on. Yeah. Because there was a tour to be done in Japan. There was a lot of money to be made at that point in Metallica. And if I were them, I would have done exactly the same thing. The same as when we talked about Led Zeppelin. Would they have quit after John Bonham died? Sure. Of course not. If it had been the second album or the third album, as it was with Cliff in, mm -hmm. in Metallica, mm -hmm. of course they wanted to carry on. But it wasn't because Cliff would have wanted it. What Cliff wanted didn't actually matter anymore. No. And the power dynamic. Now it was Lars and James's band, right? Absolutely. And you can see how out of whack that balance became with the Justice album, which for me remains one of their worst albums, although there are some outstanding tracks on there. It's a bit meandering, isn't it? The production's weird. I find it very thin. No, it is. There's a couple of great tracks on there, but, you know, that extra dimension they had with Cliff Burton was gone forever. Mm. This thing about replacing Lars, because I only know about this because I read about it in your book, but the idea was that they ultimately didn't do that because replacing two members would have been impossible had they decided to replace Lars after Cliff had died. Oh, that's not how I read the situation. Okay. How I read the situation was that, that idea died with Cliff because, sure. you know, it's one thing to get rid of Lars and get a better drummer, but you've just lost Cliff. Yeah, right. You know, it, it, if the Rolling Stones are talking about replacing Charlie Watts, that's a conversation. But if Keith Richards then dies, well... Sure. Yeah. Actually, do you know what? Let's just get a guitarist in and 
especially when you haven't built your empire yet. I think the thing about Cliff is that he had more to consider than simply megastardom, and he had more options. Yeah. Whereas I think, you know, it's hard to imagine Lars going and joining some other band. You know, he wasn't like Matt Sorum or one of these guys who could just slot in as the new drummer in the Scorpions or something. Or Dave Grohl could have easily slotted in with Tom Petty or the Queens of the Stone Age or whoever. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know what would have happened. But, But one thing I feel sure about is the story would not have been as it proceeded no. after that. No. Okay, so there's a whole future, isn't there? Post-Cliff, which we will address, no doubt, some other time. Right, now. right. So, we always, do we not, end these amazing things with uh, by awarding five stars for certain criteria to the person under discussion. Now, Cliff, and I'm, I know we'll both have a lot to say about this, would you give him marks for star quality? <laughs> you know um well i would i would in in the same way that yeah. you know maybe you know like you might give patty smith uh, right uh, okay uh, yeah you know a kind of anti-star yeah a kind of Kurt uh, cobain maybe yeah that's a really good analogy a kind yeah. of disheveled rock star yeah a kind of a, a real rock star yeah, because yeah. he wasn't trying right you know? man that's deep yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so I, I for charisma is that what we're saying well Chris? yes I, I will allow that yeah well, I'd give him five. Five stars. Influence and legacy. Uh, well, I'll have a crack at that. Bass playing, it's ten out of five. Right. People cite him regularly. You know, all these years after his death, kids yeah. who were not only were they not 15 like I was, they weren't even born anywhere near 1986. Right. They'll talk about listening to Cliff's stuff and learning from it. Yeah. But in so far as his influence on the band and what they went on to do, what would you say? Forget the bass playing. His influence on Metallica? Yeah. Oh, he five. He pushed them in that direction, five, didn't five, he? Yeah. Five, five, absolutely. Okay. Okay, without cool. without Cliff, there was no Metallica until there was no Cliff. Right, man. His taste for excess, as far as I understand it, that's just a couple of joints every now and then, isn't it? Oh, I think he liked his acid. Okay. I think he would have snorted a few grams of coke. Here and there. But I don't think... Excess, that's a different thing. Yes, it is, isn't it? Excess is a different thing. Kind of um, so I would say, extrovert, sort of deliberate overdoing it. Yeah, I, I'm going to give him one for taste for excess. Amazing, isn't it? Such a normal guy in so many ways. I think it, where he was excessive was in his love of music, the bass, Metallica. Joey Vera told me that when Armoured Saint supported Metallica, yeah. Cliff would come by the dressing room before they went on some nights and go, I sense weakness in the crowd. <laughs> so, like, go out and kill, you know. And I think any excessiveness in his nature was utterly funneled into what he did as a musician and, and as a man. I uh, have a similar story, actually, which always makes me cry, so I'll try not to, but uh, Frank Bellow of Anthrax, himself a fantastic bass player and a friend of Cliff's, told me that when they were on that final tour, after the show every night, Anthrax would have finished their set, Metallica would be about to go on, they would talk bullshit, have some drinks or whatever, and Cliff, before he left, would say to Frank, maybe I'll see you later, and Frank would answer... Maybe you will, right? Or it's the other way around. The other one would say, maybe I'll see you later. And the other one would say, maybe you will. And it was just like a stupid thing, you know? And they laughed every time they said it. And that's the last memory that Frank has of Cliff. As they played that last show together and they head off into the night, Cliff said, maybe I'll see you later. Frank said, maybe you will. Wow. And that was that. Yeah. All right. So the last thing we award a mark out of five for is death as a career move, which sounds cynical, but it's not, because a lot of people's profile... Does rise, does it not, posthumously? Your take on that? Well, obviously it wasn't a career move for Cliff. In terms of Metallica, in my own book, I make the point that 
in a very odd way, Cliff's death freed James yeah. and Lars yeah. to really pursue their goal of ultimate rock stardom because Cliff was a great leveller, a great qualifier. Yeah. He, he insisted on quality over width. Right. You know, it's very clear that Lars and James no longer had that... I was going to say steadying influence. I don't know if it was a steadying influence mm. so much as, you know, Big Brother wasn't around. Yeah. And so then they could be as big a jerks as they wanted to sure. be and get all that out of their system. I'm not saying they're like that today, but back in those days, I mean, Lars talked to me about the months and years after Cliff died yeah. as, you know, his lost 48 hours. He talks about two years of living in L.A. where, as he put it, he had a six-foot dick. Mm. You know, this is the days when they're hanging out with Guns and Roses. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, James used to mock Axel, but he he loved Slash and hanging yeah. out with him. You right. Know? Right. right, right. I don't know how much of that with Cliff's much more San Franciscan sure. sense of uh, irony yeah, and culture. Yeah, yeah. Arch humour. Arch humour. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Here, but look, one thing we must remember is that people in their millions yearn for those Metallica first three album days. Oh, absolutely. And they yeah. talk about the garage days and they mm. talk about the Cliff era. And the Cliff era is, is a phrase. Yeah. You know, the guy didn't live long and he was only in Metallica for three years, man. Mm. Maybe four years, right? Mm. Three years. No, three years. Because it was 83, wasn't it? April 83, John. Yeah. In, in a sense, his greatest legacy is that period of Metallica's career when they executed probably one, two, three radical turns after that period yet that those three arms are just flawless gold dust for a certain demographic yeah and cliff symbolizes that yeah that's my view yeah i agree with that anyway so how do we get to the next dead rock star both cliff burton and our next dead rock star made their mark as part of a four-piece who produced pile driving music not only that both bands were famed for favoring street clothes on stage lots of denim over fancy stage attire also, both bands clearly featured two band leaders, one a blonde and the other a balding guy. Mm. And Lars Ulrichs, a big fan of our next dead rock stars band, having written the introduction to their 40th anniversary book. What's more, Lars also claims that one of the next dead rock stars album covers was the inspiration for Metallica's Black Album. And on that note, everyone, this has been a 7 Digital production. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Please share and share the heck out of our podcast. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Hell yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.